Hey guys, and welcome to episode six of Fashion Law Network. On this episode, we're going to change things up a little bit. Instead of the usual fashion house legal discussions, I'm going to be discussing a jewelry company, the famous Tiffany's. So first, as usual, I'm going to go over some brief history of Tiffany & Co. Then I will focus this episode on a really interesting patent infringement lawsuit titled Jacob's Jewelry Co. versus Tiffany & Co. And then at the end of the episode, I'm going to go over a Hallmark trademark-related lawsuit involving Tiffany's titled Tiffany & Co. versus eBay. So let's begin. Now, whenever I hear the Tiffany's name or I see the store walking by, I immediately think of one of my favorite movies, Breakfast at Tiffany's from 1961, starring Audrey Hepburn, where the Tiffany's store is very prominently featured. It's kind of funny or disturbing looking back now at that movie, one of my favorite childhood movies, because Hepburn more or less plays a high-priced escort in search of a wealthy client which I guess it's not much different than a lot of lawyers, except the services are legal in nature and where their lawyer's hourly rate is actually probably lower. Um, But anyway, apparently now you actually can have breakfast at Tiffany's. There is a um, Blue Box Cafe, which opened in 2017 on the fourth floor of the iconic Fifth Avenue jewelry store. The restaurant is the first retail dining concept for Tiffany's, and they also unveiled a revamped fourth floor that features new luxury home and accessories um, items. They have things like $300 yo-yos, but let's go back to the beginning and learn a little bit about the interesting history of the Tiffany's Jewelry Company. It all began back in 1837 when 25-year-old Charles Tiffany and his friend John Young got a $1,000 loan from Charles's father, and they opened a small stationery and fancy goods store in New York City. The store quickly became really popular with women who wanted jewelry and watches that had kind of a clean style to them, not like the opulent items that were popular at the time. This was the Victorian era. Tiffany's was the first American company to adopt the British silver standard of using only metal that was 92% pure. In 1878, Tiffany got a 287 rough, fancy yellow diamond from the Diamond Miles in South Africa. It was then cut into a 128 carat polished gem. And the diamond was set into a necklace worn by Audrey Hepburn for the publicity photos for the Breakfast at Tiffany's movie. It was named the Tiffany Diamond, and the yellow colored gem is still held in the Tiffany's New York flagship store. So that really put Tiffany's on the map in relation to luxury diamond sales. The name Tiffany is also pretty synonymous with proposals and marriage since 1886 when Tiffany's unveiled the Tiffany setting. Until then, diamond rings had been set in bezels, and the Tiffany setting is like a six-prong setting that lifts the diamond off the, ba- off the band, and this maximizes the stone's kind of shine and radiance. And this is now a really popular setting for diamond rings. Now, after Charles Tiffany's death in 1902, his son Louis Tiffany became the art director for Tiffany's, And he kind of changed the style of the jewelry being sold a little bit. 
by using materials like nature-inspired jewels and glass in the Art Nouveau style. And Tiffany's also pretty known for introducing previously unknown gems to the market. For example, the Kunzite, which is kind of a purple-pink gem that was found in California, discovered by Tiffany gemologist George Kunz. It's reported that Tiffany's gemologists continue to travel all over the world to this day to source the most unique and beautiful gemstones. What's interesting is that Tiffany's also really popular with the younger set, and they have a much lower price entry-level market with affordable silver collections. For example, there's a silver open-heart necklace designed by Elsa Peretti for Tiffany's, and that's one of their really popular items, especially for younger girls. I remember getting that necklace for my 21st birthday, and I think I still have it. It hasn't lost any of its appeal, and it's still very fashionable today. One thing that has remained a constant at Tiffany's since the very beginning is the distinctive Tiffany blue box. It's kind of like that beautiful robin's egg blue. The color box and the ribbon are all trademarked, as is the term Tiffany blue and Tiffany blue box. Charles Tiffany decided that the boxes could only be obtained with a Tiffany's purchase, and this prompted the New York Times to report in 1906 that Tiffany has one thing in stock that you cannot buy off him for as much money as you may offer. He will only give it to you. And that is one of his boxes. Today, Tiffany has more than 300 stores and employs over 12,000 people across the world. Let's talk about patents now. Tiffany's owns over 60 patents. And I'll just give a quick definition of a patent here. A patent is a form of intellectual property that it gives its owner the legal right to exclude others from making, using, selling an invention for a certain amount of years. And that's done in exchange for publishing a public disclosure of your invention. So this is where a patent attorney like me would come in and write the patent application for the inventor. In order to get a patent granted, the invention must be useful, novel, and unobvious. That's kind of the legal standard. And you can even patent something that already exists as long as the improvement you make yields unexpected results. Now the crux of a patent are the claims and the claims define kind of in technical terms, the extent scope of the protection um, given by the patent or the protection that you're seeking in a patent application. So the purpose of the claims is to define which subject matter is actually protected by the patent. The patent. There are two main types of patents. There's a utility patent, which protects the way something works. And a U.S. utility patent is generally valid for 20 years from the patent priority date. And then you have a design patent, which protects the ornamental nature of the item only. So Tiffany's owns these for a lot of their jewelry designs and watches. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Tiffany's is the owner of over 60 patents, and the vast majority of them are design patents, but they do have a few interesting utility patents. There's one from 1994, and this is a utility patent that protects the way something works. It's titled Timepiece with Simultaneous Time Display for at least two time zones. So this is for a watch, which shows two time zones, which... I guess was probably novel back in 1994. They also own another utility patent for a mixed cut gemstone. 
where the unique cut of the gem is meant to optimize the brilliance and dispersion. And it's titled Cut Cornered Square Mixed Cut Gemstone. And then each patent has something called the abstract, which is kind of a quick synopsis of what the patent's about. So I'll just read a couple sentences just so you guys kind of get a feel for how a patent's written. So a cut cornered mixed cut square gemstone comprises a step cut crown with two steps and a table, a girdle, and a pavilion. The crown and pavilion are substantially square with four equal sides and corners about one third the length of the sides. It goes on with more details, and I can put a link to this patent at the notes section of this episode if anybody wants to check it out. It's pretty interesting. So this brings me to the very recent lawsuit filed on June 5th, 2020, in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York against Tiffany's. The lawsuit is centered around this almost million-dollar pink sapphire and diamond cuff bracelet from Tiffany's. I saw a picture of this bracelet, and it is absolutely stunning. Um, I'll have a photo of it on my Instagram, at PatentLawyerLA, if anybody wants to check it out. Um, So there's a Thailand-based jewelry company called Jacobs Jewelry Co., and they're the owner of a utility patent, which is titled Color Changing Multiple Stone Setting. Now, according to their complaint that they filed um, in June, they're alleging that Tiffany's has infringed this patent by making, using, selling, and are offering to sell jewelry comprising gemstones so arranged and colored that the overall jewelry practices the teachings of and incorporates the features of certain patent claims in their patent. Their patent states that a multiple stone setting in which the stones are positioned in such a way that when the viewing angle of an observer changes, the color of each of the stones change. And it may be useful to create articles of jewelry as well as to enhance objects and designs of various natures. Now, reading from the actual patent, they state that what is needed in the art is a setting for stone arrangements that change color when the viewing angles change independently from the lighting conditions and without application of a top coat. So basically this Jacobs patent is for the way that different stones are positioned where depending on the angle that you view them in, you see various colors and this is despite from a change of lighting condition or a top coat, which is a common practice that's applied in jewels. So the complaint further states that the Jacobs company has been in contact with Tiffany's about this issue, that they claim that they're infringing the patent, and that Tiffany's has stated that the relevant claims are not valid because of prior art, namely the Cartier tourmaline brooch, which dates back to 1940. Now, Jacobs maintains the Cartier brooch is different and doesn't contain the relevant claims of their patent, so it doesn't apply. Now, this is pretty important because an invention cannot be patented if there's been public disclosures of the invention made. Um, Maybe the invention was described in like a public uh, printed publication or maybe it was in public use prior to the filing of the patent application. Typically, you have about 12 months 
to file a patent application before it's publicly disclosed. So here, since they're claiming that the Cartier brooch dates back to 1940, obviously that's more than the 12 months, and Tiffany is allegedly asserting that at least one of the claims in the Jacobs patent was known to the public due to the Cartier brooch. Now, there's various ways to invalidate a patent, and prior art is probably the most common way. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, prior art is kind of all public information that was available prior to the date of the patent, and it teaches the claimed invention of the patent. Um, Now, in reading the letter that Tiffany sent to the Jacobs Jewelry Company, it's attached as Exhibit C in the complaint, Tiffany has an additional detail for why their bracelet is not infringing on the Jacobs patent. Um, They state that the first claim in the patent requires three stones, each of which are positioned perpendicular to the other two. And they say that this is not present in the Tiffany's uh, diamond cuff at issue here. So Tiffany and co hasn't formally responded to the lawsuit yet. These are all just kind of informal Um, letters that they were sending that were attached to the complaint, but I'm pretty sure that they will, and most likely based on the preliminary arguments they presented in that letter um, that they sent to the Jacobs Jewelry Company. I'm going to keep an eye on the developments in this case, and we'll keep you posted in a future episode. I'm curious to see how this will play out. Now let's switch gears and talk about trademarks. Tiffany's was involved in a really popular trademark lawsuit with eBay. This case is cited all the time. Um, It kind of set a new precedent in terms of third-party and secondhand retailers. The case was also cited in the Chanel versus The Real Real lawsuit that I discussed in my first episode of this podcast. But before we get into the details of this case, let's quickly go over trademark law. So a trademark is a symbol, word, or words that are legally registered or established by use as representing a company or product. Trademarks can be split into two different types. You can have a character trademark and a logo trademark. So the character trademarks protect the actual word or the brand name of a company. So here, the actual Tiffany's name would be the character trademark. And then a logo trademark is pretty self-explanatory. <clears throat> so the Tiffany versus eBay lawsuit is a United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit case in which the plaintiff, Tiffany and Co., filed their complaint first in 2004, alleging that eBay uh, constituted direct and contributory trademark infringement, trademark dilution, and false advertising because it um, advertised and facilitated the sale of counterfeit Tiffany jewelries on its website. I'm going to be focusing this legal analysis on the trademark issues only. I'm not going to get into the false advertising claims. Um, then in July of 2008, the district court for the Southern District of New York decided in favor of eBay on all the claims. Tiffany obviously wasn't happy about this. They appealed this ruling to the second circuit and that court affirmed the judgment of the district court with respect to the claims of trademark infringement and dilution. So let's get into some of the details of the case. 
I'm sure you guys are familiar with the eBay business model. eBay is an online marketplace. It was founded in 1995, and it basically just allows users of the website to buy and sell items with other users. eBay makes their money by charging the sellers a commission fee for the listing services and for each completed sale. And if there are any trademark issues, eBay has this protocol of addressing the trademark owners concerned through their verified rights owner program. And through that program, the owners of the trademark report potentially infringing listings to eBay by submitting a notice of claimed infringement form. So in 2003, Tiffany started complaining to eBay that they were seeing counterfeit Tiffany's jewelry items for sale on the eBay website thereby constituting trademark infringement and dilution. So here the Lanham Act would apply. It's a federal trademark statute of law, and the act prohibits a number of activities, including trademark infringement, dilution, false advertising. It also does not prevent one who trades a branded product from accurately describing it by its brand name, so long as the trader does not create confusion by implying an affiliation with the owner of the product. So here... It's alleged that eBay used the Tiffany mark to describe the genuine Tiffany goods offered for sale on its website, and none of eBay's uses of the mark suggested that Tiffany was affiliated itself with eBay or endorsed the sale of its products through eBay's website. Now, Tiffany argued with this and stated that eBay was liable for infringement because it, quote, knew or had reason to know that there was a substantial problem with the sale of counterfeit Tiffany silver jewelry on the eBay website. Now, when this went to the Second Circuit, the judge there rejected this argument, and he stated, eBay's knowledge, vel non, that counterfeit Tiffany wares were offered through its website is relevant to the issue of whether eBay contributed to the direct infringement of the Tiffany's mark by the counterfeiting vendors themselves, or whether eBay bears liability for false advertising. But it's not a basis for a claim of direct trademark infringement against eBay, especially inasmuch as it is undisputed that eBay promptly removed all listings that Tiffany challenged as counterfeit, and they took affirmative steps to identify and remove the illegitimate Tiffany goods. To impose liability because eBay can't guarantee the genuineness of all products of the purported Tiffany goods offered on its website would unduly inhibit the lawful resale of genuine Tiffany goods. So this case is used as a reference pretty often. If you guys remember in my first episode, as I mentioned before, Chanel versus The Real Real, The Real Real was trying to argue that they're akin to eBay and that they shouldn't be liable for selling the alleged counterfeit Chanel bags. The judge in that case disagreed with the real real and they stated that they're different than eBay because they are much more personally involved with the items they sell. They So they assume more responsibility for those items that they sell um, for various factors, one of which is that they claim to verify the authenticity of each item they sell on their website. And eBay has much more distance with the items that they sell. It's really just more of a platform for third-party resellers. Now, in some recent Tiffany's COVID-19 news, the Tiffany & Co. annual shareholder meeting went virtual for the first time at the end of May 2020. However, Tiffany's didn't mention any specific challenges surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic, 
but they did emphasize the various markets around the globe where it continues to grow. And that concludes episode six of Fashion Law Network. As always, thank you so much for listening and stay tuned next Tuesday for episode seven. It's going to be a really good one. Have a great day. Bye.